Hi, it's Marco here. Just before we get started with this episode, I wanted to let you know that this episode is available on our YouTube channel as a video podcast as well. So you can see not only myself and Tarek, but this week's brilliant guest. So head on over there. We've put a link in the podcast description and you can watch this episode as well as listen to it. So why not do that and uh, give us a follow while you're there? That would be great. But now we'll get straight into the episode. Hi and welcome to episode 135 of Page One, the Writers Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing journeys, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. This is one of a special series of episodes that we've recorded with industry experts to try and find out how you get your book from that perfect written manuscript that you've got to being published and possibly even being made in Hollywood. So we've spoken to agents, we've spoken to editors, we've spoken to Hollywood managers. We've had a couple of episodes with some brilliant agents on already, but we've got another agent on today who I believe you might know, Tarek. I do know of this man. Jamie Cowan is his name. He's actually my agent and he's a fantastic guy. He's uh, he's He looks after people like Tendai Huchu, Mark Hill, um, and he's he's has a Really interesting list that covers crime, thrillers, mm-hmm. sci-fi, fantasy, you know, whole whole smorgasbord. Uh, and again, much like we've chatted to agents in, in, in the past, he's got some really good tips and advice. What does he look for in that manuscript? What does he look for in your cover letter, in your in your sample chapters? All the really stuff, all the good stuff that people need to know when they're submitting. Yeah, I think what's been good about these episodes with agents is that just that, that practical side yeah. of advice that, you, you know, we can all look on the internet and find out what you need to do to try and sub- make your submission. But the practical advice of what they're actually looking for, what's important yeah. to them when they're actually looking at the query is is, is invaluable. So uh, I hope that you find these episodes as valuable as I have found them personally. Uh, and we'll get straight into the interview with Jamie now. They're all with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. In a normal podcast, I would ask, "Did you always want to be a writer?" But I mean, <laughs> did you, uh, you know, how did you, how did you come to be a literary agent? Um, as with a lot of these things, uh, kind of a, a, a chunk of luck um, and quite a lot of hard work, and I suppose this is also luck as well, but being in the right place at the right time. Um, so yeah, a combination of those things really. So I shall I give you the kind of career, the career backstory? Yeah, yeah go for it. I'll try and I'll make it as brief as I can. Um, so my mum always worked in publishing. She was a copy editor and a desk editor, and then 
and managing editor at uh, Pam Macmillan for quite a long time. That was at the end of her career. Um, so for quite a lot of that time, she was freelance, so she would work from home, as I now do. Um, she, I suppose, largely was the person to get me into books and into reading. And I think it was probably in 2003 or something that I was loafing about the house of a Tuesday at about 11 o'clock, uh, having quit a previously dreadful job. Um, and she whacked me about the head um, with a copy of the bookseller and just said, well, well, look, why don't you just think about applying for some jobs in publishing, which I'd never considered. Um, obviously, I knew a little bit about the industry from her having done the jobs that she's done for so long. She had done for so long. She's retired now. Um, so I did. I applied for about 15 jobs and got one interview um, for a job as a contracts assistant at HarperCollins. Uh, and I went in, did the interview, really liked the people. They apparently really liked me. Went for a second interview and then got off at the job, which I took. So uh, I didn't really know much about being a contract assistant or working in contract. I didn't know what contracts people even were at publishing houses. Mm -hmm. Basically, it turned out that they are the publishing industry's cheap and cheerful way of getting around having to employ lots of lawyers, um, which is the music industry and the you know film and TV industry's preferred route. Yeah. Um, so they basically have teams of effectively trained up paralegals that work for them and do all of their uh, permission stuff. They do a lot of the kind of contracts, drafting and negotiating. Um, and I found that to be a really cool job. It was really interesting. I really enjoyed the, getting to know the, the legal kind of underbelly of what underpins all of those uh, big deals that you read about on the TV. Um, but also just to be involved with books. I think if it had been a similar job in another industry, I think I would have been bored out of my mind, but actually because I knew that what I was doing was helping to kind of get books in front of people that made it fun and worthwhile. Um, I also enjoyed the kind of detailed nature of it. I really enjoyed the kind of checking of contracts, the, uh, the haggling over bits and pieces. I've got some quite kind of amusing stories about um, accidentally pressing send, uh, for example, on an email to the guy that, the lawyer that was in charge of the Dr. Seuss estate who I was negotiating the contract with. <laughs> and I wrote the I wrote the angry version of the email with the intention of being that <laughs> and I was just kind of flapping away the keyboard and hit control enter and sent the sent it straight to him. Um he was very nice about it and I, you know, scrabbled around and tried to recall it and do all of those deeply cringing and embarrassing things. <laughs> Never worked. Um, but I really enjoyed that job. I then went on and got a promotion there. Uh, of, of a sort and was there in the end for about five years then moved and did that job for Hodder then went back again to HarperCollins all for little kind of gradual promotions uh, and I was back at HarperCollins doing that job for about three years when I got offered a job as an editor so I then um, and that that's where some of the hard work comes in because in order to make that jump I'd been doing a lot of reading for uh, a few editors around the building um, and kind of generally spreading the word that I was interested in making the leap and then got a couple of opportunities to do that and took one of them um had a kind of mixed time i would say being politically correct as an editor at harper collins uh that's my dog going mental <laughs> Sorry. um so yeah had a bit of a mixed time uh working as an editor at harper collins basically the person who hired me quite quickly departed the scene um and some of the other people there probably were less than keen for me to be around but anyway it, it was an amazing job which i love to do um, I loved working with the authors. I loved doing the editing that I did. Uh, really, really enjoyed that. But eventually that came to an end, shall we say. Um, probably about 18 months, I think I was doing that job. And then by that point, I'd realised that there was no going back. I didn't want to go back to doing a back office job. I, I did a little bits of that uh, in a freelance sense, along with doing some freelance editing work too, which I really enjoyed. Um, but then bumped into my now boss, Peter Buckman, at a launch party of a mutual friend's book, a woman called Amy McCulloch, to whom I have uh, a lot to thank. Um, and we, yeah, I bumped into Peter again. He'd actually pitched me a book while I'd been an editor at HarperCollins, which I'd really liked and tried quite hard to buy. And we got on really well, went for a really good lunch in, in Hammersmith, um, got on really well. We then bumped into each other again at this party. Um, and he said that he was looking for somebody to, to bring in as an agent um, at Ampersand, to which I said, well, that sounds really exciting. He said, should we, go for, should we go and have another lunch this time in Oxford? And I said, yes, please. We had a very, very nice lunch during which he offered me a job. Um, I accepted on the spot. 
and have been doing that for nearly nine years now. Um, so that's the yeah, that's the potted history. So it, it doesn't sound. It sounds like, in terms of working on that side of the publishing industry, as long as you can sort of get a foot in the door in one role, it can be relatively not easy. But you know, there are opportunities to move around into different roles once you're in there. Is that fair to say? I kind of, but it, it depends on what the role is to start with. So it's actually pretty unusual for people to make the move from being a contract or legal person into the editorial. Right. Okay. Well, that's quite an unusual move. I know of one other woman, Vicky Meller, who actually used to be my boss, who's now a publisher at uh, Pan Macmillan, actually, uh, previously headline. Um, she made that leap. I don't know of many others. There probably are some, but I don't know of many. What, what's a more common leap to make these days is the jump from uh, marketing and publicity to editorial. That happens relatively regularly. Um, so Sam Eads, the woman who is now publisher of Orion Fiction, um, was previously a publicist, I'm pretty certain. Uh, there are a couple of other people that have made similar uh, jumps. Ben Willis, who's now at Bonnier, was previously a publicist as well. Um, so that, that tends to be a jump that gets made. Mm-hmm relatively regularly but less so the kind of job that i did um to editorial what it, what is uh, a relatively common jump is either from agent to editor or editor to agent yeah those jobs are they have a lot of crossover because really what we're doing is working with authors to make their books better and then selling them um in our cases as agents it's a less collaborative sell um than that than, than what is typical for an editor because they usually have um, quite a lot of meetings and hoops to jump through uh, before they get to the point that they can make an offer to an agent or an author. Yeah. Uh, whereas with an agent, we're kind of a bit more Lone Ranger-ish. We're, we, you know, it's kind of us and our opinions and our view on a book uh, that's really what's important if we're going to decide to take on an author. Particularly in a small, smaller agency like mine, uh, it's really up to us if we think that something's incredible, we'll take it on, um, and we're not really. That's not really a collaborative process. So, but that aside, I think there are lots of parallels um, between the role of the kind of day-to-day work that we do is 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 relatively similar if you look at it in a broad sense. And I mean, as an agent, then um, you know, most of the applications that writers will do to agencies will be of a standard sample chapters, query letters, uh, synopsis, and. From your point of view, what do you look for? You know, what is it that makes something stand out from the rest? Uh, that's a great question. And if I knew, it's one of those answers, I think, where if yeah. I knew the answer to it, I'd be the most successful agent on the planet. <laughs> uh, it's, it differs in every case. You know, I can think of submissions I've had from clients that I've taken on that I've taken on partly because I was hooked in by something they said in a letter. Um, sometimes it's something that I've seen them write on Twitter um, that's made me roar with laughter or made me go, oh my God, I never thought of that. You know, it's that there, I'm just going to, sorry, I'm just going to switch my phone's notifications off. Um, 99.9% of the time, it's uh, the writing. Um, In fact, it's always the writing, but sometimes other things can catch your eye as well. I think that's the best way of putting it. Um, Really... I've done kind of sessions where, you know, people have people have brought me in to kind of uh, give a talk to aspiring authors about how to create the perfect pitch. And you can go so far with that, but really what you're talking about is that the writing just has to be incredible. Mm-hmm. And it has to be more than that. It has to be incredible and it has to appeal to my taste as well. Um, and that's obviously an extraordinarily subjective thing, particularly when you're dealing with fiction. Uh, I would say, because what appeals to me in a fantasy novel may very well not appeal to half the other agents that are being submitted to, might just might not be their thing. Um, so really, it's about incredible writing. I think there are things that you can do wrong with a pitch. Um, one of the things that I've been noticing more a bit of a rising trend of recently is particularly from male writers, people saying, you're not going to like this book. It's not going to be for you. <laughs> probably not brave enough you're probably <laughs> reverse psychology attempt. right so i'm seeing that i'm seeing that as quite a not it doesn't happen all the time but it, it has happened uh 
frankly alarming number of wow. uh, times lately. Um, so you can cock up a pitch, uh, mm. but really uh, the best thing to do in pitches, as you both, I'm certain, know, is just to be yourself, be relatively concise, explain why you submitted to an agent, and then leave it to the writing to do its thing. Um, it's it's all about the writing for me. And and how important, just staying on the query letter uh, briefly, you know, how important are things like comps or you know capturing that pitch in a sentence and things like that are, are those vital or does it you know is it enough to be averaging and average in those sense and then the pages hopefully can do the rest of the work yeah i would say the latter i mean i think i think if somebody can write an incredible pitch that's demonstrating to me that they can write an incredible pitch uh, it doesn't or an elevator pitch or mm-hmm. you know a, yeah. a, some fantastic comparisons it's not telling me they can write a brilliant novel um, the only way that you can really find that out is to read the is to read the samples, right? So, it's um, it's helpful, but it's certainly not crucial. Mm-hmm. And what about the synopsis? I mean, obviously, when you get the you get the query letter, you get the sample chapters of maybe the first three chapters, etc. But I take it the synopsis is what really tells you where the rest of that book's going. And how? I mean, I, I take it that's very important. And also, do you want everything spoiled in that? Is that is that meant to be a total blueprint of where the story goes? That's another great question. I, synopses are notoriously horrible to write. Um, there are like entire courses on how to write synopses, I'm sure, and certainly big chunks of them. Um, what what I want from a synopsis is uh, black and white plot breakdown, character breakdown, and every possible spoiler that can be put in there. I li- I want to know everything. There's no. There's not really at that stage of the process. There's not really much point in trying to use a synopsis to uh, draw you in dot 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 cliffhanger because i i have a sample of your writing i have a pitch letter which is the bit that's really supposed to draw me in in the first place and what i need from a synopsis is everything i need to know every twist every turn every death every bit of magic every dragon i need to know all of it um, in the synopsis in order to be able to judge uh, whether the sample plus that equals a book that I want to read um, and theoretically want to then go on and potentially sell. So it needs to be um, exhaustive and totally devoid of cliffhangers, in my, in my opinion. Exhaustive, but 500 words. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is where I go back to the bit where they're obviously horrible to write. I'm so <laughs> grateful to never have to do that. Yeah. Uh, job I'm, I'm really really grateful that i don't have to write synopses because i can imagine them being a total nightmare yeah and do you, do you take on um writers that you can you know there's something about the writing or the story or something that grabs you but it still needs work you know are you are you one of the agents that will see that potential and want to want to try and hone it do you take people like that on very much so um, I think that one of the things, you know, we, we have to be, as a relatively small agency, we have to be quite conscious of where we are positioned positioned in the market. That sounds very Tesco's-like, but I think you probably know what I mean. Like, we have to be aware of what our, of what our place is in the kind of wider, um, the wider world. So where um, agencies like Curtis Brown or bigger agents, I would imagine, have more of an emphasis on taking things on that are like a bigger agency with a big office in the West End or in LA or in New York or wherever. Uh, they have big overheads, they have bills to pay, they have junior staff, they have, you know, assistant agents, they have admin people, they have legal people. Um, for those guys, they they will be taking on books that they they will still work on books, of course. Yeah. But their their eye might be more drawn to something that they think is an automatic I can make. I can sell this for 500 grand, no questions asked. Um, whereas I think smaller agents like us uh, perhaps have more opportunity to be a bit more a, a bit more um, open to, to finding unpolished potential mm-hmm. diamonds um, and doing some work on them. You know, I'm, I quite regularly, I've had two authors in the relatively recent past whose books I have had to cut from 200,000 words plus down into a more manageable size. Um, those kinds of things might be looked at by a bigger agency and they might just think, you know what, I can't, it's going to take me six months of work to get that anywhere near submission. Um, but we can do that. You know, I can do that. I don't mind, 
I don't mind. I'm not frightened by those jobs. So yes, we very much do. We very much do look at that. I do. Uh, my colleagues do the same. Um, we're we're always on the lookout for um, for books that, with a bit of polishing, can be something extraordinary. And how do you know what what is is going to be great with some polish and what is unpolishable, or or is just something that you aren't able to get to that stage? It kind of it. It's difficult to put a finger on one thing that that makes that the case with a book, but I think that you you really learn how to do that by getting it wrong. I think. Mm. Um, so I'm sure I actually can't think of any examples straight away, but I'm sure that I've taken books on that I've worked really hard on and then not sold. Um, and similarly, I've taken books on that I've done lots of work on and have then sold. So I think you you kind of learn by working with those books, by working with those writers to hone your instincts um, a bit and to learn where something is doable and something might not be. Um, I think the rule of thumb that I, that I, and I say this to clients when I'm thinking about taking them on, the rule of thumb that I try to work by is if I look at a book and I've read it and I've got an idea of what it is and what I think is brilliant about it and what I think might need some work, if I know instinctively what the things are that I would do to make it better, then I take that as a really good sign. But if I read a book and I think, I think there's something incredible in there, but I just don't know what it is that I would do to bring it out. That's when, that's the line for me between offering representation and not mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to a book that needs a reasonable amount of work. I think I need to feel confident in my ability to edit that book to the point where I think it's extraordinary and as good as it could be. And if I'm not, if I don't have that confidence, I think that's usually where I would draw the line and say, I'm not sure that I can do it. And, and, uh, you know, as, as many authors will, if you look, you only need to look at Twitter or go into writing forums and stuff there, there, there is a, from the author side of things, there can often be a frustration that they'll send things to agents and then never hear anything back and stuff. But on the, on the agent yeah. side of things, they're getting, you know, hundreds of sub submissions a week, presumably. You know, how, how do you balance these things from your point of view? You often can't, hmm. is the simple answer. And I think it's simple. I've noticed um, recently a rising number of agents actually closing to submissions. Hmm. Um, and so I think, yeah, you often can't strike that balance. And so, and, and so sometimes the only thing that you can do is to say, I can't, I've got to stop for a bit, catch up with all the editing and selling that I've got to do um, for my existing clients, mm -hmm. get that all done. And then at that stage, you can reopen to submissions when your workload is a little bit less terrifying. And that, I've not done that yet, but it is something that I can understand, I can understand why people would do it. I think the, the other side of that, and I think a lot of old school agents would feel perhaps slightly terrified that, by doing so, you would miss out on the one yeah. Yeah. or four or whatever it would be that would come in at the time that you were close to submission. So I can see why people wouldn't do it. But similarly, I can see why they would. Um, so, I mean, how many, uh, you know, at ballpark, how many queries are you receiving a week, for example? Um, to my personal inbox, it varies between 30 and about 70 a week. Well, yeah. uh, so I suppose it averages out around 50 but during during lockdown one particularly towards the end of lockdown one that we uh, that was trebled wow. so we were getting three times the number of submissions that we normally get and it's it's come down again uh, since that point to something more regular um, but there's two so there's two things at play firstly uh, as I do this job for longer more people hear about me and more people find out about what I've done my mm -hmm. name is in the acknowledgements very wonderfully of more books um, that people read. And so the longer you do it, the better known you become. So there's an automatic kind of increase that happens. Um, but similarly, uh, lockdowns just gave lots of people that hadn't had the opportunity to finish that book, the opportunity to do exactly that. Um, so that was why that happened. That was very obvious to me. And plus I was kind of, I during that time I was seeking people out as well. You know, I was, I was trying yeah. to be, um, trying to think around that situation and one of the things that have become clear to me is lots of tv people comedy writers uh musicians were completely out of work they had nothing to do at all 
there was no TV being made, there were no films being made, um, there was no comedy happening. So I basically just wrote a tweet saying any comedians, TV or film writers that have got, you know, a book idea that they want to take a bit further, drop me a line. And I got an absolute shed load um, of people writing to me, out of whom I took some clients on eventually. Um, so, you know, there are various reasons for that. But we we get the answer to go back to your question, which I've massively tangented away from. Um, the answer to your question is it's, it's often very difficult to find that balance. Um, you just have to do everything that you can to read every submission that comes in and try, if you can, to give some kind of feedback uh, to all of those that you say no to. Um, we don't have a stock rejection letter at Ampersand, or at least I don't. I think maybe my colleagues might use one from time to time, but we try very, very hard to um, to always give at least some small amount of feedback, even if it's just to say, I'm really sorry, but it just wasn't to my taste. Hmm. That is, that's something that an author can then go away and use. Uh, because if they write something then again, which is very similar to that thing before, they'll know not to send it to you. So that's a tiny thing, yeah. but at least it's some kind of feedback. So the answer is you you try you try as hard as you can to to answer everything. It's not always possible. If I'm brutally honest. And w when you're when you're an agent and you've 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 got that point where you've you've had the book and you've you've signed the client, you've, you have the book, you've done the polish and the edits on it and stuff, and you're then it's the point of getting onto the publisher. You know, is it important for you to have developed relationships with editors from different publishing houses far in advance so that you've are you having discussions constantly to see what kind of thing people are looking for, to try to think in the back of your mind, have I got anything which might fit what they're looking for right now? Is that quite important? It's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. I think, you know, there are probably loads of quips and um, one-liners that agents have come out with or people are describing agents about them only being as good as their contacts list or their little black book or whatever. Yeah. It's absolutely true. You know, we are we are only as good as the list of people that we have who will take a submission from us seriously mm. um, so in order for that to be the case firstly of course we have to be selling books um, that are then going on to sell reasonable numbers of copies we also have to be selling books that are demonstrably good um, so you know some books might go on and sell lots of copies but not necessarily be the best written in the world uh, we have to be able to demonstrate on the regular to, to editors that and publishers that we are uh, people of good taste, that we are doing our job as the first filter to make sure that we're only sending them stuff that is publishable and is going to send lots, sell lots of copies and is well edited because that takes the job out of their hands. You know, if we can sell them really well edited manuscripts that are already in pretty good shape, um, then it takes a bit of the fear and a bit of the unknown out of that process for the editor because, um, they may not know, they won't know how easy or otherwise the author is to work with in terms of editing. So there are lots of steps that we can make to make their jobs easier. Um, but to answer your question, do you answer your question? Excuse me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we have to do all of that preparatory work uh, long in advance and regularly. We have to catch up with people and make sure that we're still in touch and still across who's where and who's moved where and what their list is like and what's going on and, and all of that stuff. It's crucial. And is there a difference in, because obviously your role is then to make these uh, submissions to, to the editors uh, in the hope that someone will take it on. Is that submission process different from the author to agent submission process? Um, there are obvious similarities. You know, we're, for the most part, we will be submitting to multiple editors at once. Um, the the purpose of that process is the same you know we're attempting to sell uh really the way that i look at it is that a book will go through a, a number of different phases where it's attempting to be sold mm -hmm. so the first of those of course will be i mean you could probably even take it back one stage further and your subconscious attempting to sell an idea to your conscious brain as the writer um, but then of course that once you've got the book written and you're happy with it you then have to pitch it to, to agents to effectively sell it to them we then have to sell it to the editors. Uh, the editors will then have to sell it internally. Yeah. Uh, so if I take on a book and an editor loves it, that's only one step towards an offer popping out at the other end because the editor then has to pitch that book and sell it convincingly to all of their colleagues internally. 
Um, if they then make you an offer and it's accepted by the author, via the agent, the publisher then has to sell it to the reps from the different bookstores and they then have to sell it to the people out the other end, the customers who are picking the book up, putting it on the till and paying their money for it. So it's it's one of, these are two rather, the, the, um, the author to the agent and the agent to the editor. So they're two of myriads uh, selling processes that take place in a book's life. So yes, there are there are definite similarities for sure. Um, we have to put together a brilliant pitch, which we think is going to be eye-catching. Um, we have to explain why we think the book's going to sell millions upon millions of copies, mm. um, and we have to convince them to pick that book over any of the uh, hundreds of others they're likely to see on a yearly basis that are similar or in the same ballpark. So it, there are marked similarities. Is that is that pitch that's being put for? Obviously, sometimes the author will have given you that perfect elevator pitch or whatever in their query later but as we spoke about before sometimes that that might be a bit that needs to be a bit honed or whatever i mean yeah. how how involved is the author in that part of the process or is that really when they take a step back and that's that, that's your role at that point typically not involved at all um i that's not because i have any kind of fear or displeasure at the author being involved at that stage but that really is my job mm -hmm. um, it's my job to put the pitch together in the first place to tailor that pitch to each individual editor that i'm yeah. going to be sending them to um and i'm not sure that i think there probably comes a point in that process of the agent selling the book where the author actually will be better off stepping away from it do you know what i mean so yeah. i think there's probably a point where of course they want to know everything about what's going on and who you're sending it to and, and when it's been sent and what's come back and biting your fingernails and is there anything you can tell me and is there any news there's of course they'll want to be involved and to understand what's going on but i think there's probably a point at which it's better for them to be uh, removed from that in order that they can just give it to somebody else try and kind of forget about it to a certain extent and just hope for the best mm -hmm. i think that's probably quite a healthy uh, way to approach that situation and ultimately it's that's my job that's what i'm getting yeah, hopefully paid my commission for you know that's what um that's the point at which really we have to earn our money and and how about you know book fairs you know, we had we had london book fair a few months ago now um yeah. and is that a fairly massive are these book fairs quite massively important in terms of mixing agency editors together how do they work um it it's really a networking opportunity if you boil it down to its uh constituent parts it's really a big juicy very well populated uh, networking opportunity a book fair um it's quite unusual that books will actually be sold at the fair so for example when you're reading the bookseller the bookseller does a bunch of issues usually one a day uh during the course of the london book fair for example the bookseller being the industry magazine that most people in the uk go to for their publishing industry news um the books that you read about being like the book of the fair, a lot of, all, a lot of the legwork for those will have been done in the build-up to a book fair. Probably even, um, for most cases, I would say probably would even have been sold before the fair starts. Uh, because what the agent will then use the fair to do is to pitch it to all the international publishers that they're assuming they're representing those rights themselves. Um, so generally speaking, um, books will not actually be sold from agents to publishers. I'm sure that's happened at some stage and I'm sure it's happened once or twice here and there, but really you use those uh, opportunities to get editors sat down one after the other for two and a half, three days in a row to say hello to them, to find out how they're doing. This is what I usually do. Find out what's new with them, find out what changes there have been that they're in their list, if any, find out what they've bought, um, furiously make notes about all of that stuff. Pitch them some books, of course. I try to uh not have more than one or two books to pitch to editors at any one time during london book fair meetings which are usually half an hour long because who in god's great earth is going to remember the third fourth or fifth book that they get pitched yeah. in a half hour meeting at the london book fair which is literally dozens of meetings all in a row over three days nobody is so the thought of going beyond one or even two books to me is bonkers um, so really what you're talking about there is it's an opportunity to do the same thing that we're doing all the rest of the year outside of the book fair which is meeting people for drinks having coffee with with, with editors and publishers um, 
having Zoom meetings, of course, during lockdowns and also more recently because they're very convenient. Um, there's nothing wrong with a Zoom meeting if you've got, you know, a couple of things to catch up on and a book to tell somebody about. I don't see why you wouldn't do a Zoom. Um, it's also, of course, important to meet people in person, though. So there's always, you know, drinks that are put together by scouts or, you know, a party to go to. The HarperCollins Summer Party, for example, is coming up. Um, there will always be that stuff to do as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really a gigantic, uh, multi multitudinal uh, networking opportunity when you boil it right down. And and as an agent, um, you know, you're at a, a, a smaller agency, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, do you are you someone that has a sort of ideal number of clients in, you, in your head or are you always on the lookout for for new talent? Um, the latter, in my case, uh, I'm always looking out for new talent. Um, different agents have different ethoses, if ethi ethoses, who knows? <laughs> um, when it comes to this stuff, so actually, uh, our agency is a really great example. So, where at the one end you have Peter, who has dozens of clients, um, somewhere I think approaching 40 or 50. Anne Marie Dawson, our other primary agent, has a, a much, much smaller, more refined, she would say, I'm sure, list. And I'm somewhere in the middle. I think I've got somewhere like 22, 23 clients at the moment. Um, for somebody who's been doing my job as long as I have, 22 or 23 clients is quite a small number. Um, I think a lot of people who've been doing the job for nearly 10 years uh, would probably be closer to where Peter is. But I'm very, very picky. And I've learned to be okay with that. Um, I'm a relatively successful agent in terms of hit rate. You know, I, I, I sell many more books than I don't. Um, which I'm very happy about. Um, I think I probably could be a bit less choosy, if I'm honest. Uh, I think I one of the things that you're always kind of, I think it's dangerous to second guess yourself, of course, but you and, and always play to your strengths. That's true. But it's also important, I think, to be entrepreneurial in our job and to try to see opportunities when they uh, come along and not turn them down because you think you might have two, uh, one or two too many clients and you're worried that you're not being choosy enough. So there's a balancing act to be struck there. I think it's always best to trust your instincts. Um, but uh, yes, we are a smaller agency and there, there's there's always a point where you've got too much to do. And I think that's important too. I, I am very much on the, um, on the working in order to live side of things i'm not you know i don't allow my job to completely consume every waking hour um there are lots of lots of agents that work far longer hours than me and work far harder and that's absolutely fair enough that's their choice uh, my choice is to do my job in order to earn myself money to have a life which is what i think i do um and so i wouldn't want to take on so many clients that i no longer have time for anything else in my life whatsoever but at the same time, you always have to move forwards. And generally speaking, there's a kind of life cycle that happens with writers where the hope is that you would take them on, you would get them placed with a publisher with a reasonable contract, hopefully for more than one book. And that's a, a, assuming everything goes very well and books sell, they'll hopefully get recontracted. So once an author is placed, you could argue that quite a large chunk of the agent's initial work, at least, has been done for that client. There will, of course, be further work to do for them down the line, editing, working with them, being a confidant. God forbid if that relationship with that publisher breaks down, finding them a new one. Um, but generally speaking, the big chunk of the work comes at the beginning of that relationship. So with that in mind, you could view um, that kind of cycle as almost sort of coming not to an end, but you've done the chunk of that work and then you have time to focus on other clients. Yeah. Um, so... That's where, you know, that's how an agent like Peter very much views it. He will do a lot of his work. He'll get the client sold and then he'll start reading again. He'll move on to the next thing. He'll get them sold and, and, and so on and so forth. And he'll have to revisit those uh, earlier clients later down the line, like I said. But generally speaking, there's a cycle that you can repeat and move on and, to, and grow your list to a point where you're not overworked, but you are constantly selling. I think that's probably where you would you would want to end up, which is pretty much where I am now. Hmm. Um, but there's always space for extraordinary new books. And and you also do a lot of, you, you kind of offer a lot of advice to people. I know you've ran kind of pitching workshops. Um, you've offered prizes, kind of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people as a prize for competitions. And is it important 
in your view, to try and offer as many avenues as possible for people and writers to get in? Because, you know, a lot of the process is quite old fashioned in terms of the career letter. You know, is, is, is it good to get other avenues of, of input? It is, of course. I think anything that you can do that's going to ultimately, um, being an agent, if, you, if you're really kind of black and white about it, is really a numbers game in terms of reading of submissions. So the if you, if you were to say uh, that I take on three clients a year out of all of the submissions that come in, I'm not even sure if that's accurate. It probably changes year on year. But if I was to take on three writers a year, um, you could argue that out of that total number, if three were incredible, if you could double that number of submissions that were coming in, which of course means you have to read twice as many, but if you could double that number, then you could potentially take six on in a year and sell them. So taking for granted that you were physically able to do all of the work in order to get those people to those points, those books to those points, it really is a numbers game. Um, and so the point of all of that explanation being that the more you can do to bring more people through your door submitting to you, uh, knowing who you are, knowing what your taste is, the more likely you are to find those three, four, five, six incredible books every year. There's a side to this, of course, which is purely selfish for doing events like that and for doing workshops like that, which is the more of them that you do, the more people know who you are. Mm. Um, so we are, we don't have shop windows, you know, we agencies don't have billboards on you know, tube stations or outside bookshops. We are, uh, our presence is usually relatively limited in terms of a website, which of course we have Twitter profiles, I suppose, doing stuff on Instagram, maybe doing podcasts like this, of course. Uh, so we have to take opportunities where we can, I think, to simply have our names inserted into people's brains um, and hopefully the right people, obviously writers, hopefully writers of the kinds of books that we uh, will want to represent and that kind of mesh nicely with our tastes so there's a selfish there's a selfish side to it absolutely um but it's it's it is important to do those kinds of things it's actually really important to do those kinds of things to demystify this mm -hmm. slightly yeah. ridiculous industry you know there's so much um kind of semi unintentional gatekeeping that goes on with regard to terminology with regard to how you even get a book published in the first place you know what what does what even is publishing what does that word mean these are things that the average person is absolutely within their rights to have no idea what they mm -hmm. what they mean you know so i think it's i actually feel responsible to it sounds really pompous and trite but i, I actually do feel quite responsible for um removing some of that mystery and just laying it all bare in front of as many people as possible because i think that's the only way that we're genuinely going to get real diversity of writing published in this country and around the world is by removing all of those silly bits of terminology and acronyms that nobody has a clue about and just saying this is what it is this is who we are this is how you do it and and so i think that kind of thing is really important from that point of view too and it, obviously it, it seems um from from the author's side of things uh, at the moment that there is you know post lockdown there still seems to be a lot there's a lot of competition out there i think and it's it's quite a tough process for people i mean what would what would one piece of advice that you could give aspiring authors that are going through the process at the moment what what would that be i think to believe in yourself and believe in your book um because someone somewhere if you've written a book and you're really happy with it if it's a book that you would want to read that you have written somebody somewhere will also want to read it mm -hmm. hopefully lots of people so so my advice would always be to believe in yourself and believe in your writing back yourself um and also do your research that's two things sorry <laughs> um, the first one's kind of a bit airy fairy so we can ignore that one maybe uh, and just say do your research uh, because i think that's absolutely crucial um knowing as much as you can about the people that you want to submit your book to is going to give you a massive leg up um, in comparison to people that are just kind of maybe just saying you're a literary agent I'm going to send my book to you without yeah. working out what their taste is who they've represented in the past um, where their list might be moving what they're what they're seeing is exciting um, research as much as possible and ask people questions 
in order to make that research happen. You know, don't be afraid to reach out to people like me, like editors, like other writers that you might know or might not know. Because generally speaking, people that are in publishing are, it's a bit of a kind of um, commonly bandied around phrase that publishing is a people industry. But I think for the most part, people are actually really nice who work in books. Um, and they, we, I think generally speaking, do our jobs because we really enjoy reading and we love great writing. And that is a commonality that is really useful, I think, for aspiring writers. Use that reach out to people, buy people a coffee, don't send them a DM on Twitter, you know, do email them, whatever it is. Mm. Uh, because a lot of the time people might not, people might not, might not reply, but you've lost nothing in that case, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, do your research, believe in yourself, believe in your writing, because if you don't, nobody's going to. Well, uh, th those were the main questions that we had for you, but we always end every podcast with the same questions for our guests. The first of which is, what was the last book that you can tell us about that, that you read? <laughs> <laughs> that I finished, that I read? Yeah, yeah. What was it? Um, I'll have to think about that. Do you know what? I'm not even sure I can remember. Yeah, it's a the pretty tricky is, question for agents. The I've read so many books, for example, I'm looking at my shelves and I've got Tarek's books on there, I've got Tendai Huchu's books on there, I've got Jeff Matthews' books on there, uh, Adrian Selby's, all sorts of books that I've kind of ploughed my ploughed into my yeah. brain as part of my job. It's kind of quite hard to remember the books that I've read for fun. Uh, I did read Tade Thompson, Rosewoods, um, Tade or Tade, I'm not sure, I'm very embarrassed to not know how to pronounce his name, um, but that book I thought was incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. It was a really cool throwback to a kind of noirish vibe. Not far dissimilar, actually, Tarek, from your writing in that oh, sense. Oh, cool, okay. Um, but also just a really bonkers bit of SF. Is that uh, the book set in, in Africa? Yeah, it's set in Nigeria. Right, yeah, I think I might have read that one. The premise is that a giant fungal alien has landed on the planet. Yeah, I did read that. I did read that it's one. Completely yeah. cut the US off in its entirety, so the US is completely uh, alienated from the rest of the population of the globe. Um, and one of the effects of this alien landing has to cause a small number of people to become somewhat telepathic, um, and the main character in the book is one of those. Uh, and it follows his kind of journey. There's a lot of time shift stuff. There's a lot of leaping between different frames that is quite confusing if you read fast like I do. Um, but it's a terrific book. It's yeah. an ambitious, brilliant, fresh bit of SF writing, which I really loved. Um, so, yeah, in terms of... I probably have read two books since I read that one, but I can't remember what they are. Uh, but that one was really, really good. I loved it. Awesome. Um, what about the last film that you watched? Uh, Midsummer. Oh, nice. A couple of nights ago, whilst slightly drunk, and it absolutely scared the pants off me. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was brilliant. I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, it's basically Wicker Man uh, in Sweden with American students, but <laughs> I really, really liked it. I really loved the vibe. I thought it was stunningly beautiful in a visual sense, uh, which obviously the filmmaker then used to transpose with awful violence and shattered limbs and removed heads and pummeled in items. So uh, it was very cleverly done, but it was also very cool and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, so. I thought, I, I, I saw it in cinema when it came out and I remember thinking it took the kind of, that kind of horrible sequence in Hereditary where you kind of, I think it's got the car the car accident scene and that kind of horrible, queasy feeling. And I just it did that for like two and a half hours. And by the end of it, I was just like a wreck. I was like, this is, my heart was just kind of, re the whole time I was like, this felt uncomfortable yeah. watching it. It was, a, I mean, it's brilliant, but I don't think I could watch it again. I'm not sure I would either know, but it was really clever. Um, I'm quite a fan of, I'm really into Stranger Things as well. I, I love Stranger Things. Um, and it's quite interesting, the slightly kind of psychedelic nature of both mm -hmm. Midsummer. I mean, they're obviously very different things. Um, but I'm, yeah, strangely into psychedelic things going on in movies, whether they're awful or terrifying or really fun or, yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure that. Um, <laughs> That that probably answers the next question, which is what was the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Uh, Stranger Things. Yeah. In terms of, I'm halfway through probably about half a dozen other things. I started The Witcher, which I was quite into. Mm -hmm. 
but Stranger Things was the last series that I've I've roared through and finished. Well, it's not even the end of the season, but um, yeah, I've really really enjoyed that. Um, nicely nostalgic. I, I I felt like it kind of dipped a little bit in maybe the last season, the one before. Um, the first series was just mind-bogglingly excellent, mm-hmm. I thought, uh, and I feel like this certainly this first half is a bit of a return to form in that regard. Um, it's very clever. It's good writing. Um, it's fun to watch. It's nostalgic uh, for somebody like me who you know grew up with ET and Ghostbusters and yeah. and The Stand and Stand by Me and you know all basically everything that Stephen King ever wrote, which is like <laughs> my my teenage years. Um, it's really really cool. It's pitch perfect for me, uh, and awesome. I've really enjoyed it. Well, the, the the very last thing we always do is a, su- a super quick fire either or. And I always say there's no right answer apart from one, but we'll start off with um, the Battle of the Georges with uh, George R.R. Martin or George Lucas. Uh, George R.R. Martin. Okay. Uh, TV or cinema? TV. Night Owl or Early Bird? Night Owl, 100%. Um, Fancy restaurant or takeaway? (laughs) Uh, Takeaway. And the last one, real book or ebook? Real book. Oh, I'm always hoping for the ebook, but no one, very few people are ebook supporters over the real book, which is fair enough. But yeah. Sos, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, as usual if you enjoyed it please do take the time to give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app and make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast please also give us a follow on twitter or your other social favorite social media accounts or at uk page one and drop us a message if you want to get in touch uh, otherwise have a great week and join us next episode for another special chat with an industry insider Thank you.